This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. The life and relevance to us of the Arizal. The Arizal was a tremendous figure in Jewish philosophy, especially in Kabbalah. Tremendous impact in Tal Israel, um, among the Sephardim and the Hasidim, especially among the Sephardim and the Hasidim, who follow in his in his ways, in the paths of the Arizal, who follow his advice, who follow his philosophical advice, and even the halakha, um, certain minhagim that we do, changed to follow the path of the Arizal. So who was the Arizal? The Ari stands for his name, Ashkenazi Rabbi Yitzhak. Ari stands for three words, Ashkenazi Rabbi Yitzhak, because that was his name, Rabbi Yitzhak Ashkenazi. Now, why is he called Rabbi Yitzhak Ashkenazi? Because he was an Ashkenazi. His father was Ashkenazi and his mother was Sephardi. It's interesting. His father was a famous family, the Luria family. The Luria family he came from uh, Europe into Yerushalayim, Irak Kodesh. Tariza was born in Yerushalayim. People don't realize he was born in Yerushalayim, Irak Kodesh. And he was born to an Ashkenazi father. Um, and to an Asfardi mother. So his, his Ashkenazi father's name was Shlomo Luria. Shlomo Luria, the Luria family is very famous. The Maharshal of Shlomo Luria was a very famous rabbi, not too confused. I think it was his cousin, second cousin, who wrote the Yam Shel Shlomo, which is a tremendous work on the Talmud, tremendous commentary on the Talmud. So here we have this Shlomo Luria, who married into his, the Asfardi family of Franco, or Francis, who was from originally from Egypt, and uh, he, he was a very holy person, holy individual. And his wife was pregnant, and she had a baby. She had a baby boy in the old city of Yerushalayim. In fact, you can go today to the old Yeshuv Museum in the old city of Yerushalayim. Happened to be there a few years ago. You'll see the the old Yeshuv. It's called the old Yeshuv Museum, and in that old Yeshuv Museum, it's basically a courtyard with four rooms around it. And the four rooms, those days, everyone lived around in a room. Whole families lived in rooms. There were partitions in the rooms, and it was built around a courtyard, and the courtyard was used by all four families. You can see how they lived. You can go to that museum. It's the way how they used to live 100 years ago, 200 years ago in Yerushalayim. And one of the rooms in the courtyard was used. Now, it's amazing to think that it's so old. It's over 500 years old, that courtyard was used by the Arizal's family. One of the rooms was used by the Arizal's family. Later on, there was a room used by Angel, which is a famous bread company, bakery in Yerushalayim, and Berman. Berman, also bakery in Yerushalayim. So these rooms were used by whole families, usually large families, big families. I don't know how they lived in these rooms. The old Yeshuv Museum, very, very famous. Um, till today, now they opened the shul in where the Arizal's family used to live. There's a, there's a little shul. It's a one-room shul where he used to live, his family used to live. Um, he was born in 1534, 1534 in the old city of Yerushalayim. And there's a, there's a story that says that his father was told that he had Eliyahu Nabi not to do the Brit before he sees Eliyahu Nabi at the Brit. Now, we know that there's a Midrash. The Midrash says that Eliyahu Nabi complained to God. In fact, it's very topical because last week's parasha was Pinchas. And we know Pinchas was a Kanai. 
Pinchas was a person who did not stand for any nonsense. And Eliyahu Navi was also a Kanai. Now, the Arizal says Eliyahu Navi was either Gilgul of Pinchas or was Pinchas kept on, on living, and Eliyahu Navi was Pinchas. Um, so it's a, it's a nice idea. Uh, Pinchas and Eliyahu Navi, one the same person, they're both Kanaim. But Eliyahu Navi, at the end of his, his days on this planet, at least, he never died. He was taken up in a chariot of fire and uh, he complained about the Jewish people. He complained that they were not doing the mitzvot. So Hashem, the Midrash says, Hashem says that you're going to see that they're going to do mitzvot because you're going to be at every single breed. You complain the Jews are not doing mitzvot and therefore your punishment is that you're going to be the witness that they are doing the circumcisions on their children until, imagine, thousands of years later, here we are. Every family is a boy. They do a Brit Milah. And who is there to witness Eliyahu Navi? In fact, at every Brit, we set aside a chair for Eliyahu Navi. So the legend goes, story goes, that the father of the Rizal was told that Eliyahu Navi is coming to the Brit. Make sure you do not do the Brit until you see Eliyahu Navi is there. And everyone comes to the Brit. Obviously, ideally, you should do a Brit early in the morning. You have a general concept, Zirizin. People who are quick to do mitzvot, to mitzvot, they do mitzvot early. So the mitzvah is to do the brit as early as possible. So we know a brit can only be done during the daytime. So as soon as the sun rises, it's a mitzvah to do the brit. Obviously, there's mitzvot you should do before, pray, shacharit. So usually it's straight after shacharit or as close to shacharit as possible. We do a brit milah. And what happened was, Darizal's father's waiting, everyone's waiting, and Darizal's waiting, and father's waiting, 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 everyone goes home. What's going on? They don't know what's going on. It's hours and hours and hours. Everyone's gone home. It's just Darizal's father, the baby, and the mother. And they're waiting over there until finally, I don't know what time it was, it was late. Darizal's father says, I see Eliyahu Navi, we can proceed with Brit. That's the legend, that's the story. Now, it's interesting, they don't say stories about that, about other people. They say about Darizal, his father saw that Eliyahu V is going to come to the Brit. He actually saw Eliyahu V holding the baby, the Brit. But soon after, shortly after, a couple of years later, the young rabbi, Darizal's father, passes away. Unfortunately, his poor wife is destitute in Yerushalayim, and she decides she's going to go back to Egypt, where she came from, and lived with her wealthy brother. Uh, the wealthy, he had a wealthy brother in, uh, in Egypt, and she moved back to Egypt, and she was uh, welcomed by her, uh, her brother, and the brother supports her and her young son, Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, and uh, he studies with the greatest luminaries, the great rabbis of Egypt, who are, are interesting because they're also buried in the cemetery in Sfat. Darizal was buried in Sfat. And also the Radbaz. The Radbaz was his teacher of David bin Zimra, who was the chief rabbi of Egypt. So he studied with the greatest luminaries in Egypt at that time. And also with the author of the Chita Mikubetzit, Rabbi Salil Ashkenazi. And it's a very fine, if you learn, ever learn Gemara and Yeshiva, one of the books which are indispensable to be learned with Gemara is an anthology of commentaries on the Talmud, which is called the Shita Mikubetzit. So Shita means the opinion, Mikubetzit means gathered. 
So the gathering of opinions, it's an anthology, was put together by Rabbi Salil Ashkenazi and also by his helper, the Ari. Ari Rizal was not just a big Kabbalist. Before you learn Kabbalah, you have to learn Pshat. A person has to learn, it's required, it's important to have a base. A person can't just learn Kabbalah. The problem is when a person learns Kabbalah, they totally go off because they're not anchored in Halakha. They're not anchored in Jewish law. They're not anchored in Jewish knowledge. And therefore, they go off and they do their own thing, which is very, very dangerous. And that's why it's very important for every person who wants to learn Kabbalah to first have a solid basis in Chumash, in Tanakh, in Shulchan Aruch, in Gemara. So that Arizal had a very good basis. He didn't just go off and learn Kabbalah. He was a young boy. He studied. He studied Gemara. He studied Pshat. He studied a simple explanation. He knew everything. He knew all the... He knew the Pardes. As the rabbis tell us, Pardes stands for four things. Pshat, which is a simple explanation. Remez, which are the hints in the Torah. Drash, which are the deep explanations. And Sod, which are the secrets. So Pardes. Pardes literally means an orchard. So the Jewish knowledge is like an orchard. It has every different part. It's like having a four-course meal. First, you start with the Pshat, and you have the Remez, and you have the Drash, then you have the Sod. And the sod is obviously the highest, but it, it's like a ladder. If you miss the bottom rings of the bottom rungs of the ladder, the ladder can fall apart. So it's very important. So not to miss the bottom rungs of the ladder. There's no person going to have a solid ladder of knowledge, of Jewish knowledge, and has to have the bottom rungs. The bottom rungs are the pshat, the remez, and the drash. Person going to learn humash. Person going to learn Tanakh. Person going to learn uh, Gemara. Person going to learn Shulchan Aruch before they start learning Kabbalah. Otherwise, it's a very dangerous area. We know, we talked about, I think we talked about once, about the four great rabbis who entered the Pardes, which means they learned, started learning Kabbalah. The great rabbis, can you imagine, all four great rabbis, only one came out of the Pardes. Only one came out sane and well, healthy out of the Pardes. That was Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Shimon ben Soma goes mad. Ben Azai dies. Elisha ben Abuya turned, he went off, off the derech. He became an anti-religious Jew. So the only one who survived was Rabbi Akiva. That's the dangers involved. The person doesn't have a solid basis and foundation in Judaism, in Jewish knowledge, in Jewish law. So it's very important not to start learning Kabbalah until a person is well-versed in other areas and has a solid basis so they don't go off, off their rocker, uh, as they say in English. A person shouldn't go crazy. A person should be, have a foundation. It's a dream of Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu dreamt of a ladder going up to heaven. But it says clearly, that the base of the ladder was on the ground. A person could have their base on the ground and put their head in heaven. In other words, we human beings are like a ladder. We have to start from the bottom, be solid leaf with a solid foundation of knowledge of Pshat. And then our heads can be in the clouds, but we have a foundation. And uh, Arya Kaplan writes, before a person starts to meditate, the first thing they have to know is when a person meditates, and that's part of Kabbalah as well, meditating to, to know how to really meditate as a Jew, you have to learn Kabbalah. It's impossible to know how to meditate as a Jew without learning Kabbalah. And that's part of Kabbalah is the art of meditation. Before a person meditates, they have to know that they want to come back down to earth. A person meditates very dangerous. 
They put their head is full of other things, and the head's in the clouds, and they're dreaming, they're, they're uh, in different kinds of consciousness. So it's very important to want to come back into this world. So otherwise, it's very dangerous because they can lose their minds, as we see Ben Zoma went mad. Ben Zoma went mad. How did he go mad? Because he's, he went into a different state of reality and did not want to come back to this state of reality. So it's in a sense, it's like going on drugs. The person, when they're meditating, is like on drugs. And they have to want to come back. So they have to have a solid foundation in this world. Anyway, let's go through a little bit of the history of Dariza before we talk more about the philosophy. So we know that Dariza's father died when he was still a child. Under the pressure of poverty, his mother went to Egypt where they lived with her brother, Mordechai Francis or Mordechai Franco, who was a wealthy tax agent for the Egyptian government. Dariz started learning under the tutelage of Rabbi Bitzalel Ashkenazi, who lived from 1520 to 1592, who is well known for his Shita which we said is an anthology of commentaries on the Talmud, of Pshat, of simple explanations on the Talmud, not so simple, but under the getter of Pshat. He, um, and there's also evidence that he studied under the great Rabbaz, the chief rabbi of Egypt, the great Rabbaz, Rab David ben Zebra, who was buried not far from Darizal in Sfat. Interesting, they brought him to Sfat. He lived the last few years in Sfat as a very old man, and he was buried, Darizal was buried next to him. So Rabbi Ben Zimra, 1480 to 1573, was then the chief rabbi of Cairo. At the time Darizal got to the age of 15, he was known for his brilliance, for his expertise in Talmud. Now that is a very interesting point that not, not many people know. Darizal did not live very long. He died in his late 30s. He died in his late 30s, and it's phenomenal how he learned so much over such a short period. How did he know so much knowledge? It's not humanly possible. There's definitely a spiritual component. Rabbis say he had what's called Gilui Eliyahu Hanavi. He had a revelation from Elijah the prophet, which is something which is uh, known about. The Kabbalists talk about it. They say the Ben Shai also had Gilui Eliyahu um, the Elijah the prophet would come and teach certain individuals in every generation. It's a kind of Ruha Kodesh, and especially a person who yearns for knowledge and prays to Hashem and cries to Hashem and fasts and pleads to Hashem to open their minds to the knowledge, they get what's called a Magid, a teacher. So we know that the uh, Shulchan Aruch, also Rabbi Yosef Karo, had a Magid, which, uh, and he writes a book, Magid Mesharim what the Magid told him, that uh, the higher level of Magid is not a regular Magid, it is Eliyahu Hanavi himself, who comes to teach the person. And that's the Rizal, apparently we're going to talk about how he had a Magid, he, had a, he has the Eliyahu Hanavi teaching him. So anyway, so he becomes a big Talmudist, age of 15. He uh, became one of the top Talmudic scholars. And at that time, his uncle gave his daughter to him to marry. So he married his uncle's daughter. He studied under the Rabbaz, Rabbi Ben-Zira, and he spent six years studying with Rabbi Betzalel Ashkenazi. He helped his teacher create the Shita Mikubetzit, the famous commentary on the Talmud. After this, now it's interesting, his, his life takes a turn. He is looking for more spirituality. He wants to understand how Hashem created the world. 
He wants to understand what levels are beyond this physical world. So he sa it says he spent eight years in solitary uh, confinement. That, well, not really. He was working for his uncle. And one of the jobs he had to do was he had to be a shomer. He had to be a guardian of various boats on the Nile. And obviously he had to have a hut and he would sleep on the hut and just make sure no robbers would come in the middle of the night to his boats which were docked on the Nile um, and make sure there's no hanky-panky with the cargo because he's in charge of the, his uncle's in charge of the taxes. No one's unloading cargo in the middle of the night. The result was a guard at the port, which obviously offered a lot of downtime in the night to, to learn and to meditate. And that's what he did eight years, solid eight years. He would come home for Shabbat and uh, he would meditate. No one knew exactly what he was doing. But eventually we learned that he had because he becomes one of the most knowledgeable people in the world in the area of Kabbalah. So what you're going to talk about. So this brilliant youngster becomes one of the close disciples of the Rabbaz, Rabbi David Ben Zimra. He studied the Talmud early. He became very, very uh, knowledgeable in Talmud, in Gemara, and Halakha. He wrote a commentary to one of the most complicated Masechtot um, in the Talmud, which is Zavachim which talks about the laws of the Korbanot. And uh, he married his, his cousin, his first cousin, the daughter of Mordechai Francis, his uncle. And he acquires, he starts uh, staying in a cabin by the river uh, to look after as a shomer, as a guard. He acquires a knowledge of Kabbalah and devoted his life, what was left of his life, to its study of Kabbalah and to the teaching his students about Kabbalah. So uh, his main thrust at that time, the main book of Kabbalah, still is one of the main books of Kabbalah, is the Zohar. The Zohar is a work of Kabbalah. We talked about, we talked about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, one of our earlier classes around Lagba Omer. He talks about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the main author, one of the main authors of the Zohar. And the Zohar was, is the main work of Kabbalah at that time. And it was for nearly 1500 years. It was one of the only books of Kabbalah, of the main books of Kabbalah, written by the students of Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shumbar Yafai. And Arizal, it's, it's really in code. You cannot really understand the Zohar without any commentaries. And the, the Arizal, through his meditating, he said he would meditate on each line of Zohar till he would understand it. He was just keep on repeating the line over and over again. That's kind of meditation until the secret of that line was revealed to him. He wouldn't leave a single line without knowing the secret behind it. He would just keep on repeating it, meditating about that line in the Zohar until he, he got some kind of revelation. So Yahu got a revelation explaining that line to him. So the Zohar is a sealed book. You cannot, if you read the Zohar, you cannot understand what is going on. It's in code. So Arizal understood the Zohar. And with that knowledge, he explained the Zohar to other people, explained the system of the Zohar in terms of how the world was created. It's one of the secrets of Kabbalah is Maaseh Rishi, the secrets of creation. And number two is Maaseh Merkabah. The Gemara talks about two secrets, Maaseh Bereshit, the secret of creation and the secret of the Merkava, which is the vision, the first chapter of the prophet Ezekiel. The Merkava vision is an awesome vision. 
And uh, so he found out, he decoded, he was, he was given the knowledge to decode the Zohar. He was given the knowledge to decode the Zohar in a way that no one before him, there were great rabbis before him, there were great Kabbalists before him. Um, unfortunately, before that, the Kabbalah was not disseminated. It was not taught. It was taught maybe by one great person in a generation to his one student, two students. We know the Ramban was a very big Kabbalist. Uh, there's Rabbi Yitzhak the Blind, who was a very big Kabbalist, but they would keep the knowledge in a very small circle. So the main work of Kabbalah, the Zohar, other minor Kabbalistic works, we have Raziel HaMalach, we have other books, the Bahir, uh, we have other books of Zohar, the Sifra, the Sniuta. we have other books that Darizal delved into, he would leave it one line by one line, he would meditate, penetrate, and finally get a vision or a Kilui Eliyahu, Ruach HaKodesh, to reveal to him the secret hidden meaning behind these words. So he would come home every Shabbat, and he wouldn't speak in any other language except for Lashon HaKodesh, holy, the holy tongue, Hebrew, the holy tongue, the tongue of the Humash. Uh, so it, he would try not to speak at all, but if he spoke, he spoke only in Hebrew. And uh, in about the year 1569, he moved with his family to Jerusalem, and from there to Sfat. Sfat was an amazing center at that time. The chief rabbi of Sfat was Rabbi Yosef Karo. It was 1492. The year of expulsion was the bar mitzvah of Rabbi Yosef Karo. And instead of a bar mitzvah, 1492, the Karo family was expelled from Spain. They left Spain. And after a lot of wandering around through Bulgaria, Turkey, and other places, Rabbi Yosef Karo ends up in Sfat, in the Holy Land, in Sfat. And a lot of great rabbis come. Uh, a lot of the great rabbis of Spain ended up in Sfat. It's interesting. The first aliyah back to Israel, the first major aliyah back to Israel, before all the aliyot of the 15th, of the 18th century, 19th century, people talk about uh, from Europe, the greatest aliyah, the first aliyah was the aliyah of the Spanish Jews, the ones who ran away from Spain, who were welcomed into the Ottoman Empire, and who ended up in Yerushalayim and in Sfat. Yerushalayim and Sfat had a big influx of Unfortunately, not a, very, not a tremendously big influx. It should have been bigger. It was just hard to get there. It was hard to get to, to Turkey. It was hard to get to these places, especially in those days with no uh, good means of transport. And plus, eking a living in Sfat was not easy. And if a lot of people, tremendous Monsieur Nefesh, with tremendous self-sacrifice, moved to Sfat, the great rabbis of the time, a lot of the great rabbis of the time, Move to Sfat. If you go through the cemetery, the old cemetery in Sfat, which you have to go, but you got to go if you're not going. You have to go and just see the names and pray by the graves of these famous people, the famous rabbis who moved there in that time. They all moved around the same time to Sfat. So in 1570, at age 36, Darizal returned to Israel and settled in Sfat, first Yushalayim and then Sfat. And uh, standing outside the walls of Yerushalayim, the Arizal, on his way to Sfat, the Arizal confirms for us the locations of David Amelech's grave, where we go today at Kevin David, 
Harzion, the mountain of Zion, outside the walls of Yushalayim, and other graves of Sarikim in the area. So it's interesting because a lot of the graves never had monuments on them. All the monuments were taken down. There was no uh, tradition. The Arizam, through his Ruach HaKodesh, could identify where these Sadiqim were buried. And in fact, one of the great tasks that Arizal did was he would mark the graves and tell us who was buried there. So <laughs> interesting that even though traditions were lost, uh, where the greats were buried, even King David, no one knew where he was buried. Arizal came along and said he's buried right here. That's how we know Kevret David, other Kevret Sadiqim, and especially the Kvarim of the Galil. The Kvarim in the Galilee, the great uh, rabbis where they're buried, and who was the one who identified their graves. The result using his Ruach HaKodesh would say, I sense this Sadiq is buried over here. So there's a beautiful story um, that the, said by his student. His main student was Rav Chaim Vital. Rav Chaim Vital was the main student who wrote down all the books of the Arizal. So all the works of the Arizal, which we're going to talk about, were written by his main student, Rav Chaim Vital, who was older, who was about, so even though he was young, um, he was, he would knew much more than anyone else at that time. He was more knowledgeable about Kabbalah than anyone else. He could ring circles around everyone else. He knew the answers to any issues that were raised in the yeshiva. Anyway, we're going to talk more about that. So but about, upon arriving in Sfat, Arizal joined a small group of Kabbalists who were led by Rav Moshe Cordovero. Rav Moshe Cordovero was a tremendously big Kabbalist, one of the biggest Kabbalists of that time. He wrote a few books. One of them was Tomer Devorah, which is a more a Musar ethical work based on the 13 attributes of Hashem, 13, 13 attributes, Kel Rahum, Bechanun, Erech and so on and so forth, which we say every day. Sfat, we say it every day, twice a day in Shacharit and Mincha. And we say it many times on Yom Kippur, the 13 attributes of um, mercy. So the Torah Devorah is a book of teaching us how to emulate God's attributes. How do we emulate as human beings, emulate God's attributes? And the other book was totally a book of Kabbalah, Pardes Rimonim by Ramoshe Cordovero. And uh, probably came from Cordova. That's why his name is Cordovero. And he is buried in the famous cemetery of Sfat, not far from the grave of the Arizal. So the Arizal became a student of, they joined, they, I don't know if they became a student per se, they joined the group that were learning with Ramoshe Cordovero, all great Kabbalists. And shortly afterwards, Ramoshe Cordovero passes away. And there's a famous story again that they asked Ramoshe Cordovero, who will be the leader when you pass away? He was sick. He said, the one who will see a pillar of fire at my burial. It's very similar to the story of Eliyahu Navi when he dies. Elisha says, give me a double uh, load of your spirit. I want double of your spirit. So, so Eliyahu Navi tells him, he says, if you can see me going up to heaven in a chariot of fire, you will get a double load of my vision and my spirit. So that's what happened. He saw this fire going up to heaven. And same thing with Ramosha Cordovero. It says, if you can see that the pillar of fire at my, at my grave, you will be the next leader. So who saw this pillar of fire? It says that Rizal saw this pillar of fire and he became the head of the Kabbalists of Sfat. He became the head at a very young age, 36 years old. He becomes the head Kabbalist of Sfat. 
Unfortunately, he does not live long. About two years later, he passed away. And in those two years, he taught Rav Chaim Vital so much, so much information. It's incredible that today there's yeshivot of Kabbalists learning all day long. You can learn the books of the Arizal, uh, which was written by Rav Chaim Vital, his student. And you can learn them. And it would take about 900 years. One of the estimates I heard from a great Kabbalist was, it would take you 900 years to finish the books of the Arizal. And then he says, no, not really 900, but 700. Okay, 700 years to learn in depth because they're written as a jigsaw puzzle. The books of the Arizal were written as a jigsaw puzzle, which we're going to talk a bit about as Rav Hashem. And it's, it wasn't written in a very um, orderly fashion. It's written like the Talmud, basically. The Talmud was not written in an orderly fashion. It, would, it took the Rambam, who lived uh, about a thousand years later, to decode the Talmud and write it down in a very orderly fashion and uh, put it in a code of law. Because the Talmud is written in a very, not a very orderly fashion. The Zohar is also not written in an orderly fashion. It's written on the parasha of the week. There's all kinds of information scattered right through the Zohar. And the Arizal's writings are much more in order, but nevertheless, there are so many works, eight different books he wrote, um, and different parts of the knowledge are written in different parts of the books. And sometimes they seem to contradict each other. And that's why you need uh, all these famous Kabbalists of the last two centuries, three centuries, to decode the information of the Arizal, to decode it and answer all the questions of the of these contradictions, and what does that reason mean? It's very, very deep knowledge, which again takes a, a lot of research, a lot of learning, studying, years and years of study to be able to decode the, this information. So today we have tons of books, there are tons of books written on Kabbalah. Just like the Torah is a sea, the Kabbalah became another sea on top of it. So you can learn Kabbalah for 700 years. If you live that long, and still not get to the end of it. It's amazing. It's an amazing system. And just the best minds taking ages to learn. It's amazing how the Arizal got all this information. Obviously, it was not a normal way. You know, it's interesting that there's a story that's to illustrate this point. It says the Arizal, before he went to sleep, that he would they would ask him, Where do you want your soul to go? Which academy in heaven would you want your soul to go? So one day he says, I want to the Academy of Moshe Rabbeinu. The next day he goes, I want the Academy of Yoshua Ben Nun. I want the Academy of, of, uh, of Shimon Bar Yochai. I want the Academy of Rabbi Yakiva. All the, others, all the other great rabbis. And he could direct his soul to certain places in Gan Eden, which is an amazing concept. And he could learn. When a person goes to sleep, you know, we waste our time with dreams and garbage in our heads, our uh, subconscious full of garbage. He could direct his mind before he slept to go and learn information from the worlds above, from the greatest minds in the worlds above. That's an amazing concept that, you know, a person that learns, part of Kabbalah is learning how to direct one's mind even when one is asleep. And the story goes that one day he's sleeping, he's taking a Shabbat nap, and he slept for like two hours, and the students saw him muttering in his sleep. He was like muttering in his sleep, ba 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 so when he woke up, they asked him, Rabbi, what were you doing when you were sleeping? He said, I was learning, and it would take me 80 years 
to teach you what I learned in my sleep. So that is obviously a much higher level of uh, learning that we are doing. You know, you know, the idea is uh, you be able to hook your mind up to a computer and download information to your mind. That's basically what Darizal did. He could hook into these uh, spiritual energies in the worlds above, and his mind would download the information. All these, all the spiritual information was downloaded into his mind. How the world was created, what the what the world is really about, how many different levels, dimensions, and how they interact, and etc. 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 These, this amount of knowledge was passed down to Arizal, and in two years. I just want to tell you, two years, he instructed Rahim Vital, and the vast amount of information that today is eight works of information called the Shmone Sha'ari, the eight gates, the eight gates of wisdom, uh, which were entrusted to his student Rahim Vital. And it would take, I told you, it's about 700 years to finish all these eight gates. And learn the property, not to just whiz through it and read it and uh, like we did in college, uh, but to actually learn it properly in depth and understand every single word, every single concept, and then compare the different uh, books to each other and verify information. And then you have, after that result came, one of the great Kabbalists, the Rashash, Rav Shalom Sharabi. It's impossible to speak about the Arizal without Rav Shalom Sharabi. But we know that today there are different systems of Kabbalah based on the Arizal. Uh, there's a system of Kabbalah which the Sephardim especially learned based on the Rashash of Shalom Sharabi. Then you have the system of Kabbalah the Ashkenazim learned based on the Vilna Gaon and the Leshem. And then you have a system of Kabbalah of, of the Hasidim based on the Baal Shem Tov and his students. So three basic branches of the knowledge of Darizal. So you have the, the Sephardic branch of Darizal's knowledge. Uh, it's interesting in Sfat, if you go to Sfat, you'll find there's two Arizal synagogues. There's the Arizal Ashkenazi Arizal synagogue, and you have the Sfati Ashkenaz Arizal synagogue, because the Arizal would pray in both different times. He was, his father was Ashkenazi, but he says that the Ashkenazi prayers go only through one gate of heaven, whereas the Sfati prayers go through all 12 gates in heaven. So apparently each tribe has its own gate, and the Sephardic system of prayer goes through all 12 gates. Hence, the Hasidim changed the prayer book. They changed the Ashkenazi prayer book to what's called Nusach Sephard. So today you have three main prayer books, uh, uh, three main streams of prayer books. One is Sephardi. Uh, one is Sephard, which is the old Ashkenaz change to emulate the writings of the Arizal. And the third one is Ashkenaz, which is the old Ashkenaz prayer book before the Arizal. So it's three main branches of Arizal's knowledge. The Sephardic branch was as follows the Rashash and Darizal, and the Chidar of Chaim Yosef David Azulai, the Benishchai, all follow the Sephardic system of learning Darizal's writings. Then you have the Ashkenazi system based on the Quran, the Vilna Gaon, who's a genius, who don't realize he was also a very big Kabbalist and his student, Rav Chaim Balazhin who wrote uh, the famous work Nefesh HaChaim and Ruach HaChaim, very Kabbalistic works. The Nefesh HaChaim are very Kabbalistic works. And then we have the system of the Baal Shem Tov based on the Arizal. So it's interesting how the knowledge of Arizal went into three streams, all three streams of Judaism. 
and every stream got a different glance, a different breath of the Arizal's knowledge. So as far as we focus mainly on the Kavanot, on the meditational part of the Arizal's writings, what's called, there's one gate, there's eight gates, we said we're going to go through them. One gate is called Shar HaKavanot, the gate of Kavanot, which is meditation, the gate of meditation tells you in great detail, but you have to know all the background information before you start learning this. A person needs to know the Eitz Chaim. A person's got to know the Eitz Chaim, which is the main body of Kabbalistic writings, uh, how Hashem created the worlds, and uh, how the worlds come down, the Hishtal Shalut, which is the chain of worlds coming down from the highest points to the lowest points to our world, which is one of the lowest worlds. And uh, before you learn about Kabbalah, you have to know the Shtal Shaluk, you have to know how Hashem created the world, how everything links together, what's going on, all the different worlds around us, all different dimensions, how our prayers go up through, which gates a person's prayers goes up, Where? what are we working on, what are we trying to do with our prayers. Um, the main fundamental, these are, these are main fundamentals, you know, I jokingly spoke to someone last week and said, you know, we need to open a school of Kabbalah for kids, so at least when they grow up, they'll know. There's more to just praying than, than just saying the words. Um, um, you know, this is like a big shock to people that you see the, the Siddur of the Rashash. I mean, it's, it's like one word of prayer and five pages of meditation, every word of prayer. Literally, the Gemara says, you know, it's interesting, without the Rashash, you'll never understand this Gemara. The Gemara says the early pious ones, before the Hasidim, the early pious ones in the time of the Talmud, they would pray three hours. Each prayer took them three hours. One hour before the prayer, one hour after the prayer, one hour praying. So if you go to a Kabbalistic yeshiva where they pray with these kavanot, it literally takes about three hours to pray shaharit, three hours to pray mincha, and three hours to pray arvit. You pray nine hours a day with no exaggeration at all. Um, um, in fact, there's a rabbi in Yerushalayim who prays only with kavanot. Famous Rabbi Rav Batsri, Rav David Batsri. Um, and uh, if you go to his minyan, it's interesting. There's other yeshiva, it's interesting to visit just once in your life, just go to Kabbalistic yeshiva and pray with them. And then wonder, you know, you're waiting for them to finish the Amida, it takes an hour. You say, what the heck are these people doing? And until you see the siddur of uh, what they're praying from, you'll see it's totally different. It's one one word of prayer and three pages or four pages of kavanot of thoughts. So interesting, the thoughts behind the prayer. What am I doing? What am I doing in the worlds above? It's a total, it's a system based on knowledge of what a person is doing when they pray. In other words, we are not just working in a physical dimension. Our souls are linked to higher dimensions. And when a person does something, it's not just acting on this physical plane it's also acting in the spiritual planes above unfortunately we are not aware of what we are doing in the, in the spiritual worlds above sometimes we are actually wreaking havoc in the spiritual worlds above persons in a bad temper say not only are they in a bad temper down here in this world their souls are wreaking havoc in the spiritual worlds above on the other hand a person is bringing its forth they're actually building spiritual worlds in the worlds above so when a person passes away after 120 years, they'll show them either places that were built by them, 
spiritual worlds that were built by them or spiritual worlds that were destroyed by them. The good part of everything is we can do teshuva and we can rebuild all the places that we smashed with our bad deeds and our bad thoughts and our bad emotions. And we can rebuild them sometimes in just seconds just by thinking thoughts of teshuva. I'm sorry, Hashem. I wish I never did that. I'll never do it again. I'll be a better person. I love you, Hashem. I want to get close to you, Hashem. All these are tremendous thoughts. They have tremendous impacts in the world above. You know, Rav Chaim Velazhen writes in his book, Nefesh Chaim, I think it's a very important work for those who want to begin even Kabbalah. I mean, obviously, you need a knowledge of Kabbalah to just read it, but it's sort of basic. It tells us, it's interesting, we think that Hashem is the puppet master and he's pulling our strings. That is totally false. It's not Judaism at all. We don't believe in fate and destiny and luck. We believe that we have free choice. Not only do we have free choice, we are putting the strings of the world above. Wow. We have the power to pull the strings of the worlds above. We have the power to build the worlds above. We have the power to destroy the worlds above. And that's why the Kabbalah is always talking about fixing the sin of Adam. Adam, Adam, Arishon, made tr- caused tremendous havoc in the worlds above. He upset the system that was created by God in the six days of creation. He was meant to fix it, and instead of which he caused more havoc. So our job is to fix his, his uh, smashing of whatever he did, and also to fix the whole six days of creation. They were not fixed. They were meant to have been fixed on the last Shabbat, and the first Shabbat of creation by Adam. Unfortunately, instead of fixing it, we messed everything up, and we are still fixing it. It's taking us years and years until the year 6,000. Hopefully, everything will be fixed, and the Mashiach will come. It's rather share before that. But that's the idea. The idea is everything we do in this world, we're either fixing or we are demolishing the worlds above. So sometimes we can see the effects of our deeds in this world. A person smashes a building, smashes a plate, smashes crockery, whatever it is, they see the effects of their smashing. But we don't see what we're doing in the worlds above. If we could only see a little glimpse of what we do in the worlds above with our deeds, we'd be very motivated to do only good things and not bad things. We'd be tremendously motivated. We have to know that everything has an effect. We know today that sound, as it says, speaks. They create molecules in the wall around that are moving and vibrating. They increase the vibrations in the molecules in the wall. We talk about ripple effects. Everything today is ripple effects. We know the uncertainty principle. We know uh, that if if there's a a butterfly flapping its wings in America, there may be a storm in China six months down the road because of that. So today we know that everything is linked. Everything in this world is linked. Everything in our deeds is linked to the worlds above as well through our soul. The Kabbalah spoke about different parts of the soul. And uh, our mission is to fix the soul Hashem gave us. And it's a never-ending job. Why? Because... You fix one soul, you get another one. You fix another one, you get another one. It's never ending. A person can grow tremendously spiritually because spiritual worlds are, they're created by God who is in soft. There's no end. And the spiritual worlds also have no end. And therefore it's a never ending task that we have to try and fix in this small lifespan that we have. We have to fix our souls. And how does a person fix their soul? And the answer is by fixing their character traits, because we are the vessel of our soul. Our bodies are our vessel of our soul. If we fix our character traits, which are parts of our minds, our consciousness, 
then the part of the soul which is in that consciousness is also being fixed as well. So that's our job. Our mission is to fix this world one soul at a time. We fix this world one soul at a time. First fix yourself, and fix your families, and fix your community, and then fix the world. As Rav Hashem will all be successful. Anyway, this is all to do with Arizal. So the Arizal joins this group of Kabbalists led by Rabosha Cordovero. Ramosha Cordovero, known as his acronym, the Ramak, Ramosha Cordovero, Ramak, Resh Mem Kuf. And he passed away shortly after that. And he said, whoever sees the fire, pillar of fire in my grave will be the leader of the Kabbalists. And Arizal became the leader of the Kabbalists. His students were known as Gurei Hari. So he, Arizal was known by his uh, an acronym, uh, Ashkenazi Rabbi Yitzhak. And Ari, and his students were known as Gurehari, the cubs, the lion cubs. Ari is a, is a lion. So his uh, students were known as the lion cubs, Gurehari. And one of them was Rabbi Chaim bin uh, Vital, as we talked about. And Arisa would give over his teachings orally, and his students would write them down. Now, we, as far as we know, that there were no students who understood the Arizal as much as Rabbi Chaim Vital. So we only accept. Usually, we only accept as valid the writings of Rav Chaim Vital. If other students wrote down other things, and there's a contradiction, we don't follow the other students. Our, the Arizal's writings only through Rav Chaim Vital were considered authoritative, nothing else. That's, that separates the Sephardim from the Hasidim, who have who go by other authors as well, the Mishnah Hasidim and others. They accept, we don't accept as the final word. The final word is Rav Chaim Vital. Before his passing, Darizal warned his student of Chaim Vital to keep his teachings hidden, even from his former students. Rav Chaim Vital guarded the notes of Darizal's Kabbalah vigorously, did not let anyone see them. Around 1587, Rav Chaim Vital fell very ill while he was still in Sfat. Another student, Rabbi Yeshua ben Nun, not to be confused with the real Yeshua ben Nun, this is another rabbi at that time, Rabbi Yeshua ben Nun, asked his brother, Rav Chaim Vital's brother of Moshe Vital, to then borrow some of the manuscripts of Rav Chaim Vital. While the Rav Chaim Vital was sick, he lent him 600 pages of his writings from the Ari's classes. Rav Yeshua ben Nun, story goes, hires 100 scribes, had them copy the manuscripts over a period of three days, and then returned the originals before Rav Chaim Vital realizes that they were lost, that they were missing. These copies were filled with mistakes, were later edited by Rav Shmuel Vital, Rav Chaim Vital's son, and a more refined version of the Kitve Ari was later created by Rav Abraham Azulai, Rav Yaakov Tzemach, who prayed, because what happened was that Rav Chaim, uh, Rav Chaim Vital moved to Syria, Damascus, and was buried in the Jewish cemetery in Damascus. And when he died, he told his, his, uh, his family to bury all the writings that he had written all these thousands of pages of writings of the Arizal's uh, teachings to bury them in the grave with him. He didn't want anyone to get them as the Arizal commanded him. So what happened was two rabbis of Abraham Azulai, the grandfather of the Chidah of Chaim David Yosef Azulai, the famous Chidah, and Rabbi Yaakov Tzemach, they pray and they fast and they ask Hashem for permission to dig up the grave. They want to dig up the grave of the Chaim Bital get these manuscripts, these priceless manuscripts out of the grave. Finally, they get permission in a dream. And Chaim Vital comes back to them in a dream and says, now is the time you can take these manuscripts out of my grave. 
and I give you permission to disseminate the information. So that is where we get all the writings of the Rizal. Just get through them. We'll go them. We'll go through them uh, in time. The Rizal also composed a number of Zimirot, which are, are sung till today in most all Jewish homes during the Shabbat meals. They include Yom Zele Yisrael, which is a beautiful song. Yom Zele Yisrael, or a beautiful song. And then you have that Kilo Sudata, which is a different uh, sort of heading to all three different, uh, and also on Sudashi uh, Revit, which is uh, Merav Malka, the results are very big on Merav Malka, to wash with bread, to eat with two, two loaves of bread. If you're still hungry, you can still have an appetite. It's a very important thing. So he has like a preface to all these meals called Atkinu Sudata de Amluta, Shlemata Hedvata de Malka Kanisha. We're inviting to this meal different parts of the worlds above to come and join us at these meals. So very, very spiritual concepts to elevate everything physical that we do. Every Friday night, Arizal and his students went out to greet the Shabbat in the field at the edge of the city of Sfat. Like you imagine, we're talking about the old Sfat, which is very small. And you go in the, 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 the Ashkenazi city of uh, Ashkenazi synagogue, Dari Ashkenazi synagogue is right by the edge of the city. So apparently they just went out the synagogue to the courtyard, uh, which, which looked out on the, over the mountains of Sfat. And they will pray over there um, uh, with the Kabbalah Shabbat. They will go outside to greet the Shabbat Malka, the queen, the Shabbat queen. Um, the Arizal had his uh, mikvah over there, and it's one of the coldest frozen mikvah. It's actually a spring from under the mountain. You can go there, and it's a segura. It says, every man who goes to that mikvah will not die without teshuva. So it's a good thing to go. Every, every man should go once in their lifetime. It's not for women, it's just for men because it's not Sanua, it's, the, it's in a cave and whatever. So it's a man should go, every man should go in a cave, in the, in the Arizal's mikvah once in a lifetime, at least once in a lifetime. It's cold, so I advise you to only go on a very hot day during the summertime, it's fat, and then you can go outside and warm yourself up. It's freezing, freezing cold, freezing cold. And the outside of Arizal is on the 5th of Av, which is on this Tuesday night, Wednesday, to make sure you light a candle for that results on the outside. Also, this Sunday, uh, sorry, the Shabbat is Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh is the outside of Aaron HaKohen, Moshe Rabbeinu's brother, Aaron HaKohen. Also, a very good idea to light a candle before Shabbat in memory of Aaron HaKohen, the great Aaron HaKohen. We should emulate Aaron HaKohen. The help with the Briot, the Torah. Love the creation, people who are created in God's by God and uh, draw them close to the Torah. So the Arizal was worthy of Ruach HaKodesh. Eliyahu came, taught in the mysteries of the Torah. Every night his soul ascended to heaven. Angels would escort him, asking which academy he chose to visit. Sometimes we'd go to the Academy of Rashim Baruchai, Academy of Akiva, Rediezer, and on occasion to academies of the ancient prophets. In fact, next to the grave of the Arizal is not far from the grave, is Hoshea Hanavi, the grave of Hoshea, the prophet, the great prophet Hoshea. And uh, Darizal dies in 1570 on, uh, in Av, uh, sorry, 1572, on the 5th of Av, 5332, barely two years after he arrived in Sfat. During his brief stay there, he assembled a group of approximately a dozen disciples with Chaim Vital at the head, and they continued to review his teachings. For the most part, it was Rav Chaim Vital who put them into writing. He said that he's the main author. The main works are 
the Eitz Chayim, the tree of life, um, very hard, very thick uh, work, very big work. Eitz Chayim, the basics of Kabbalah. If you want to learn Kabbalah, the basics of Kabbalah, Eitz Chayim, or the Otsrot Chayim. Otsrot Chayim is a precy of the Eitz Chayim. So it's very important to learn these works as an uh, introduction to Kabbalah. And the pre Chaim, the fruits of the tree of life, and also the Shmonis Sharim, which we're going to talk about, the eight gates of knowledge. And uh, eight gates, the eight gates. So the first gate is Shar Hakdamot. Shar Hakdamot, the gate of introductions, which covers the same theoretical grounds as Eitz Chaim. So that's why sometimes you find conflicts within the Shar Hakdamot. Sometimes it's more in detail, sometimes it's uh, short form. And it uh, explains more about the things, topics which are mentioned in the Eitz Chayim, sometimes less. So you have to actually go through both of them to understand the basics of Kabbalah, Shar HaKnamot, and the Eitz Chayim, and the pre-Eitz Chayim, the fruits of the Tree of Life, the Shara Kavanot, the gates of meditation, which we talked about a little bit. We talk about um, what a person is doing when they do every mitzvah. What does a mitzvah actually achieve in the worlds above? Where does it link to in the worlds above? Very, very important information. Our mitzvot have tremendous effects in the world above. But if you read the book of Shara Kavanod, you'll see, again, very, very complex. You have to know the basics. You have to learn the Eitzhayim. You have to know Shara Kavanod before you learn the book of Shara Kavanod, the book of Kavanod, the gate of Kavanod. The fourth gate is Shara Hapsukim. Sorry, third gate. Uh, so let's just recap. Shar Damot, the gate of introduction. The second one is Shar Mamre Rashbi, the gate of the statements of Rashbi. Rashbi Rabshim Barichai. In other words, Darizal explains hard passages of the Zohar. And that's where the roots of Darizal's knowledge is all Zohar. The trouble is, as we said, you couldn't understand Zohar. No one could understand Zohar. He got this knowledge through his meditations on the Zohar. So Shar Mamre Rashbi, the gates of the Rashbi, Rav Shimon Bar Yochai's teachings in the Zohar. The third gates is Shar Mamre Hazal, which is interesting, where he goes through different sayings in the Talmud and gives you the Kabbalistic explanation of statements in the Talmud. Amazing, amazing knowledge of uh, things seem to be simple. So you get the Kabbalistic aspect of the statements in the Talmud. Amazing. The fourth is Shara Psukim, where he goes through Psukim in the Torah, explain the Kabbalistic knowledge behind it, the, the sword behind these Psukim. The fifth is Shara HaMitzvot, which is uh, the gate of Mitzvot, where he talks about what the Mitzvot, how they interact with the worlds above. And the sixth is Shara Kavanot, the gate of meditations, which we talked about briefly. And the seventh is Sharu HaKodesh, the gate of divine inspiration. How to get divine inspiration? Amazing knowledge, scary knowledge. Uh, you've got to want divine inspiration. You've got to be ready for divine inspiration. And you've got to be pure to get divine inspiration. The eighth gate is Shar HaGilgulim, which is the gate of reincarnation, which everyone wants to learn, but it's also very, very complex. Reincarnation is not a topic which is very easy because the different parts of the soul and different parts of the soul come back. Not every part of the soul comes back. Only the parts of the soul that need to be fixed come back. Most of the soul does not come back, hopefully. And if sometimes it comes back in different people. So say the soul of Adam came back 600,000 parts. 
which are, that's why 600,000 Jews left Egypt. That's the soul, each one had a spark of the soul of Adam. So it's not a very easy topic. Gilgulim, uh, reincarnation. Yes, we do believe in reincarnation. There's a whole gate of reincarnation. And, but it's again, a person shouldn't take it at just uh, face uh, level. It's a deep concept and uh, not to be taken and uh, talked about, oh, this one is this and this one is this. Berizot says it, but you've got to understand in detail because the different parts of the soul came back to different people. Each one has a different part of the soul. Okay, so we have the eight gates plus the, uh, the uh, Eitz Chayim, well, Shrot Chayim, and Shar. Okay, so we have eight gates. Let's recap the eight gates. Shar Kamot, Gate of Introduction, which covers the same theoretical ground as Eitz Chayim. The second is Shar Mamre Rashbi, teachings of the Zohar. Third is Mamre Chazal, the teachings of the Talmud. The fourth is Shar Tzukim, the teachings of the Bible, the Torah. The fifth is Shar Mitzvot, the Gate of the Commandments. The sixth gate is the Shar Kavanot, the Gate of Meditations. And the seventh gate is Shar Ruach HaKodesh, how to get the divine spirit. And the eighth gate is Shar Gilead, the gate of reincarnation. I wish you all uh, Shabbat Shalom. Next week, we have a very special class, which we're going to talk about. Ve'ahavta le'reacha kamocha, to do the tikkun of the three weeks, which we said the second time was destroyed because of lack of brotherly love. And we're going to talk about what is ve'ahavta le'reacha kamocha. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.